verses 16 to 20 in an attitude of prayer and then uh, and then pray with you before we open the word together so second peter chapter 1 verses 16 to 20 for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received glory and honor from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the, by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What we have in this book, men and women, is not a cleverly devised myth. Amen? It is the record of those who were eyewitnesses of God Himself of Jesus in the flesh, of his words and works, those who heard the voice on the mountain say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And it is to us the prophetic word of God to which we do well to pay attention. Amen. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are not men and women who follow a book written by mere men, but men and women who follow a person who is revealed in a book that was written down by men who spoke from you as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so, Father, since you are the ultimate author of Scripture, we know that your word is reliable, that it is trustworthy, that it speaks to us the true words of God, and that we can base our lives on them and have no fear whatsoever that any word of yours will fall to the ground or fail to come true. It is a sure foundation. And Father, we pray that we would pay attention to it here this morning, and we would take it in as what it really is, the actual Word of God. And Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to be in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 25 today. Uh, as you uh, make your way there, let me uh, just back up for a minute and get us oriented. Um, I probably remember better than most of, of, most of us uh, where we were last week. Um, but uh, if... If you don't know exactly where we are, this is where we are. We've been studying through the book of Romans. We've come to the place where Paul is now drawing a very sharp contrast 
between the law, the Old Testament law, and God's New Testament, New Covenant gospel. And the law tells us what God's righteous standard is, and it demands that we obey it. It says, you do this, and you do not do that. And you are to be holy, as I, the Lord your God, am holy. And if you fail to obey the law, then you are condemned. Uh, That's why Paul calls it in chapter 8 of Romans, verse 2, the law of sin and death. It's very simple. You sin, you break the law, you die. That's the law. Uh, It promises you life if you keep it, and it also promises you death if you break it. Now, the good news of the gospel tells us something different entirely. It tells us, first of all, that God's righteous standard, His holy uh, character must be lived up to. His righteous standard must be met. And if it isn't, we will die. But the gospel also tells us something very important, that God's righteous and holy standard has been met in the person of Jesus Christ and that He died in our place for our sins, and that with His death and resurrection offers to us His righteousness. So that, guess what? We live up to and meet God's standard of righteousness. Not by our own effort, but on the basis of Christ's effort on our behalf. He's our substitute so that through faith in Christ, the death penalty for sin has been paid, and we now possess the righteousness that God requires. And Paul has spent a lot of time so far in the book telling us about how powerful the gospel is compared to the law, and how much better it is than the law as a standard and as a means of obtaining God's righteousness. And he has also told us in the first part of chapter 7 that the law, because we are believers in Christ, doesn't even apply to us anymore. And it doesn't help us to overcome sin. And instead, what the law does is simply increase our desire to sin by commanding us not to. Remember we talked about that? Somebody made two dozen chocolate chip cookies at my house. And they said to me or to my children, do not eat those cookies. What's the first thing I want to do when their back is turned? Have at least one sample, right? Why is that? Because there's something inside of us that wants to do whatever we have been explicitly told not to do. In fact, fact, one of the best ways to get somebody to do something is to tell them not to do it, right? Like if you were a store owner and you had put up a sign that said, do not throw rocks at this window, how long do you think your window would last? I bet not the week, right? Because as soon as you tell somebody not to do something, that's the very thing they can't wait to do. And the law is powerless to help us to obey. And based on that, what are we to think about the law? If the law tells us what God's standard is, but doesn't help us to meet it, 
How are we to think about the law? Is it a good thing? Or maybe it's a bad thing? And Paul gives us answers to these and a lot of other questions in chapter 7 here of Romans, verses 7 to 25. And so if you're not there yet, I want you to turn there with me. We're going to read some of these verses together. Uh, Verses uh, 7 through 14 we'll start with. And they talk about how sin's power overcomes the law's promise of life. So if you've got your Bible there, Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 14 these words. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what sin, what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Now in these verses, what Paul is talking about, I think, is what it is like to try to obey the law as a non-Christian. That as somebody who is not a believer, this is what it's like to uh, try to obey it. Uh, and, and what happens is, is that sin overcomes the law's promise of life. So that even though the law tells you if you keep it, you'll have eternal life, sin's power actually overwhelms that promise. Sin is so powerful in our hearts that when we don't know Christ, there's no way we can keep the law successfully. And so it turns out to be a promise that never gets fulfilled. We never experience the life part because sin ensures that we only experience death. And that's really the bottom line point in this section that we really need to understand. That though the law promises life, it only brings death because nobody can or ever has or ever will, apart from Jesus, keep the law successfully. But we also need to understand how we get to that conclusion. So I want to walk us quickly through these verses and see what Paul tells us about the law. First, in verse 7, he tells us that the law is not sin. And he feels like he needs to clarify that, apparently, because he was concerned that people might draw the wrong conclusion from the fact that the law increases our desire to violate it. As soon as I hear what the law is, my sin rises up within me and wants to violate it. 
and he is trying to prevent people from drawing the wrong conclusion. The law is not sin. It is holy. In fact, as Paul tells us also in verse 7, its function is to teach us what sin is and to forbid us from doing it. And when the law says you shall not covet, you are forced to learn what coveting is, first of all, and then uh, to obey that. So the law serves to identify and to define and to prohibit sin for all of us. But the problem is, is that knowing the law does not help me to obey it. Right? I mean, if 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 knowing the law helped you to obey it, then when we put the Surgeon General warning on a pack of cigarettes, nobody would smoke, right? When they, when they tell you on the back of a package of, of, of Twinkies that there are 280 calories in a Twinkie, you wouldn't go, well, I need to have one, right? Knowing what reality is doesn't help you to choose to obey that thing, right? Information does not transform your life. It doesn't. If it did, all of us would exercise and eat right and get enough sleep and do all the things we ought, right? But information doesn't help us to do that. In fact, uh, what it does, what the law does, according to verse 8, is that when we learn the commandment, sin arises and produces all kinds of sinful behavior in direct violation of the commandment we now know. That what the law forbids, our sin nature suddenly longs to commit. And because we are slaves to sin, we commit it. Paul says, look, I didn't even know what coveting was until I read the law, you shall not covet. And then all of a sudden, I got with the coveting program. I started doing all kinds of coveting because now I knew what it was and I wanted to do it. Sin arises in our hearts. And verse 8 also tells us that sin lies dead apart from the law. And what he means there is that when we don't have the law, we don't know that we're violating it. Our sin nature might be present, but we're not really guilty of sin because we aren't consciously sinning. We don't know any better. And thus we were, according to verse 9, alive apart from the law. But, verse 10, once we know God's commandments, our sin puts us to death. The law promises life to those who keep it, but it only succeeds in putting us to death. Because as soon as we know what it is, we want to do it and we break it. And verse 11 says, My sin nature deceives us into sinning by awakening in us a desire to violate the law. So what's, what's the bottom line? Is there, is there anything wrong with the law? Is there anything wrong with the law itself? 
Verse 12 tells us, no, there's not. The law is holy and righteous and good. So what's the problem? Let me clue us all in. Look in the mirror. What's the problem? We cannot keep it. According to verse 14 and, and, and verse 13 and 14, my sin nature produces death in me. And my sin nature's response to God's commandment shows how immeasurably sinful my sin is in wanting to do something only because it's forbidden for me to do. And Paul is just underlining the point in verse 14. He says, the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. The problem is not the law. In other words, the problem is me and my sinful nature that rebels against the law as soon as I find out what it is. And so the law cannot bring me the life it promises. My sinful nature just overpowers the promise that the law makes. And that's the bad news. And unfortunately, there is more of it for us in the next section before we get the good news at the end. All right? So hang in here. There's good news coming. But there's more bad news. Look at verse 15 to 24 here with me. All right. What's Paul say here? For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. And so now, so is now no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. If I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. O wretched man that I am! Who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, I should tell you at this point, there's a, a fairly intense debate among scholars and, and Bible interpreters whether Paul is speaking in, his, in, his, uh, in these verses about his non-Christian experience. You know, the previous verses all are in the past tense. And so that's clearly Paul's past life. But what about these? Is this also his past life, or is this his present life? Well, I think it's his present life as a believer. And I think about that for reasons both exegetical and practical. Uh, exegetical meaning uh, according to the grammar and context of the passage that he's writing. As you read that, what you see is that uh, there's a big shift from the past tense to the present tense, that this is happening right now in other words. And also, it accords with my Christian experience. It fits tongue and groove with how my life sometimes is as a believer. 
that when I try based on my own flesh, based on my own effort, based on, on, on solely on my own power to obey God, guess what? I can't do it. I can't do it. In fact, when I was a young Christian, I thought there must be something wrong with my faith. I thought, like, I got factory seconds or something, right? Like, I got, everybody else got varsity faith, I got B-team faith, right? Uh, I was JV, everybody else got to play, but somehow this was not me. Because, because what happened was, I, I heard all about, all about the transformed life that comes from following Christ, and about how you're going to have new life within you, and how you're going to walk by the Holy Spirit, and you're going to no longer gratify the deeds of the flesh. And I'm like, yes, that's what I want. And I got saved, and guess what? I kept on doing all the same things that I did before. I had all the same desires I did before I met Jesus. I had all the same vocabulary that I did before I met Jesus. I had all the same sins that I did before I met Jesus. And so every time some pastor or evangelist or retreat speaker or revivalist or whoever would come in to our church would would offer an invitation. Well, by golly, I was getting down on my knees. I was praying. I'm like, God, I don't know. It must have, I must not have done it right the last time, right? I mean, the last 50 times I have prayed to receive Christ, you know, I must have just not quite had the right words or the right intensity of feeling or the right heart in it. And so this time I mean it for sure, Right? This time I really mean it. I was like the cowardly lion. Remember him? Wizard of Oz. I do believe in spooks. I do believe in spooks. Only with me it was, I do believe in Jesus. I really believe. So how come my life is not transformed? How come I still a struggle? I prayed. Right along with Paul, I have the desire to do what is right, but I cannot carry it out. I don't do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I don't do the good I want to. Instead, I do the evil I don't want to do. And when I do right, when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, and in me, in my flesh, dwells no good thing. Anybody else have a period of their life like that? Yeah, don't, don't shoot your hands up necessarily, okay? But we can all probably testify, right? Just play poker, all right? It's church, after all, we've got to have a, a level of hypocrisy. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, not really, okay? we just as well be honest, right? Because this is reality for a lot of us. And a lot, maybe, maybe you're living here right now. And as I'm talking about this, the little hairs are going up on the back of your neck. Is this true? Is this what it looks like when we try to please God and live for Him under our own steam? You better believe it. Yes, it does. It looks exactly like this. Because you will not, by your own effort attain holiness. It will not happen. 
what's wrong with us. Verse 17 tells us sin dwells within us. It persists. And it persists even in believers. Amen? And because of that, though we might say right along with Paul in verse 22 that we delight in the law of God in our inner being, we have to say exactly what he also says in verse 23, that we see in the parts of our bodies another law at work, that sin dwells within us and makes us its captive and slave so that we don't obey God. And when we are confronted with this and convicted by it, we can find ourselves despairing and even wondering, like I did, if maybe my salvation just didn't take. Maybe I need to trust Christ over again. You might even find yourself praying with Paul in verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? That is a heart cry of a man, heart cry of a woman who knows the sinfulness of their sin and despises it and yet can't seem to quite shake free from it. I know that feeling. My heart has prayed some variation of this very prayer. And I'll bet yours has too. But we need not dwell there in that despairing place. Amen? Because the Bible tells us about the bad news, but it also gives us wonderful good news. It gives us the answer to Paul's question in verse 24. Who will set me free from this body of death? Read it with me. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. By the way, just let me just clarify here for just a second. Were you a sinner when you got saved? Mm-hmm. How many of your sins were in the future when Jesus died for you? All of them. Okay. So, so was God surprised? When after you got saved, you sinned. Was he horrified and shocked? Like, I didn't know that was going to happen. Right? No, he was not shocked. In fact, the very point of our salvation is that we fail on our own to meet God's standard. Right? That's why the cross happened. Is because if it depends on us, it's going to be a giant crater. We're going to auger in every single time if it depends on us. But it doesn't depend on us. It depends on Christ who is the Savior. Only Jesus sets us free from sin and death. We can't keep the law on our own, and we can't give, live up to God's standard by our own power. Sin is too powerful, and it is too persistent to be overcome by the likes of you and me. Amen? We need Jesus, and we need Him badly. We need Him worse than we realize, because He is the only one who can set us free 
Jesus can and does set us free from sin and death. Praise the Lord. Amen. It is not all up to us. We have a deliverer and a savior. And before we moved on, I want you to look at the last part of this verse. Uh, It confused me a little bit as I worked through the passage this week. It seems not to make sense as you first read it. It's like, why is this here? You have this magnificent concluding note of praise, and then you have, you're back to depression again. What's What's the deal with that, right? But what I think what Paul is doing here in the end of verse 25 is shifting gears a little bit. He's making it clear that his true self, the new nature that he has that's been redeemed by Christ, serves the law of God. That in his mind, he is righteous. I don't mean that like according to his own estimation. What I mean is is that there's the inner part of him actually does possess righteousness through Christ. And that he is at war with his old nature that is still around. Uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2 talks about being transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Present your body as a living sacrifice and all this, right? We're going to get there in a few months. Um, But uh, You think I'm kidding. Uh, But um, but it's, it's because our redemption begins in our minds, in our inner person, and works out from there. And so he's saying, I am righteous. I still have my sin nature hanging around. With my flesh, I serve the law of sin. In other words, if it's, if it's just my flesh that I'm depending on, I'm going to sin. But if I'm depending on Christ, then I'm going to serve the law of God with my mind. And it's going to work out from there. If you want to skip ahead a little bit, see where this is all ending up, um, what you'll see is that living by the Spirit, this is Romans 8, we're going to start next week, living by the Spirit produces obedience and righteousness. And we live by the Spirit through Jesus Christ our Lord, whose death and resurrection has saved us and brought us to the point of having new life, even as we continually go to war against the old one, trying to reassert its power over us. How do you win the war? Well, you've got to come back next week. Hear Romans 8. But, for now, I want you to remember a few things. Okay? The war within you is just that. It is war. It's war. It's not a skirmish. It's not a police action. It's not a minor little detail of your life. It's a war. And if you're going to win, you've got to treat it as such. You've got to go to war against the flesh by the Spirit of God. And you've got to put to death by the Spirit the deeds of the body. Paul says, Romans chapter 8, verse 13. Again, we'll get there 
uh, in weeks to come. If you, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. But it's a war. And we as Christians need to remember that. You know, I, I've known a lot of soldiers and, I, and, and military people, and I know this. None of them ever sign up and go through all the training and make it their goal to go into battle and not get shot very often. Right? No one says that. They go, well, you know, I'm going off uh, with the 10th Mountain Division or the 3rd Armored Cavalry or whatever, and my goal is just not to get shot very much. Right? A lot of Christians go to war that way. They go, well, you know, I just don't want to sin very much. Right? I don't want to have the enemy defeat me very often. No. You train and you discipline yourself and you pursue Christ so that you don't get shot by the enemy at all is the goal, right? And it's a war. One of the best scenes in a, in, in a great movie is uh, the end of The Untouchables, right? Elliot, it's the story of Elliot Ness taking down Al Capone and he's got his band of brothers with him, The Untouchables, right? And early in the movie, Capone says, you know, Mr. Ness, you need to remember up here in Chicago, we never stop fighting until the fight is done, right? At the end of the movie, while Capone is being carted off to prison, you know what Ness says? Hey, Capone, never stop fighting until the fight is done. And he goes, what? Never stop fighting till the fight is done. And that's a good rule for us too. Never stop fighting till the fight is done. When's the fight done? When Jesus comes back or when you go to glory, that's when the fight is over. That's when the final bell rings. That's when you've gone your 15th round. Amen? You never stop fighting because the fight is done. It's a war, and we need to win. And thank God we have Jesus Christ, our Lord, who empowers our obedience that we might defeat sin. Amen? You only win by the Holy Spirit's power. Scriptures are very, very clear on this. You cannot win under your own steam. If it depends on you, you're going to fail. If you, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. But it's by the Spirit. It has to be. Because sin is too powerful and too persistent any other way for you to win. Now, Last thing, we need to all praise God for our Lord Jesus Christ who has set us free from this body of death. Amen? And we're going to do that. We're going to pray, and we're going to seek His face, and we're going to confess wherever and whenever we have tried to live the spiritual life by fleshly means, or tried to save ourselves from sin and death on our own when only He saves and only he heals. So we're going to pray here in just a second. And then we're going to sing a great song. To God be the glory. Great things he has done. So let's pray. 
God, our Heavenly Father, we confess to you that it is our natural tendency because of our sin to think that we can, that we are good enough and smart enough and wise enough and holy enough all on our own that we can attain holiness and please you by our own effort. And we can't. In fact, when we try to obey you in our flesh, we find only sin and only death. Only cursing and desperation and despair. Father, when we walk by the Spirit, we put to death the deeds of our old sin nature. And we thank you, Father, that Jesus Christ has come to be the Savior who frees us from all these things. Father, I pray if there's anyone here, a boy or a girl or a man or a woman, who's been trying to live their life apart from the Spirit and has witnessed failure after failure after failure, Father, I pray that you would help them to repent and to turn away from their independence and to depend on you and to live the, the, the life of the Spirit and walking with you day by day, confessing sin, putting it to death, and walking in newness of life. Father, forgive us. We're sometimes not smart enough to know what we're doing. But your word is very clear here. And so we pray, Father, for your help. We pray that you will lead us by your Holy Spirit into the spiritual life and help us to walk in it and enjoy it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're about to sing a, a hymn written in about 1870 by the great Fanny Crosby, the blind poet who wrote thousands and thousands of hymns uh, over the course of her long life. Uh, when it was written, it first crossed the ocean to Great Britain with the revivals of Dwight Moody and Ira Sankey in the late 1800s, and it became popular there first, and it died out over here. Nobody over here had ever heard of it. Until 1952, when Billy Graham went over to Great Britain and he learned this song when he was doing revivals there. And he and his uh, song leader, Cliff Barrows, uh, heard it and learned it. Uh, and then they brought it back uh, to America in 1954 as part of the 1954 crusade here. And it has be, been a hymn standard ever since then. Um, it's a great hymn, praising God, giving Him glory for what He has done for us in Christ to set us free from sin and death and bring us to glory. So let's all stand to God, be the glory, great things He hath done.